Hi, and welcome to the Breastfeeding Medicine Podcast. I'm your co-host, Dr. Ann Eglash. I'm a clinical professor in the Department of Family Medicine at the University of Wisconsin School of Medicine and Public Health and a board-certified lactation consultant. And I'm your co-host, Dr. Karen Bodnar. I am a pediatric hospitalist at Anova Children's Hospital and an assistant professor of pediatrics at Virginia Commonwealth University. I'm also a board-certified lactation consultant. This podcast is produced and edited by The Milk Mob and is co-sponsored by the Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine. Are you ready to go? Hi, Karen. Hi. All right, so we're going to continue our journey through the abstracts from Ishmael from the International Society for Human Milk Research and Lactation. And uh, these were, again, for those of you who have not heard our first podcast, which was done uh, last month. Uh, This is our second part on reviewing these abstracts. So if you want to hear more abstracts, please listen to the first part. Uh, So we'll continue. And uh, Karen, do you want to start with a podcast? Sure. I'm going to jump right in with a study or an abstract titled Maternal DNA Methylation and Lactation Status a potential mechanism for prevention of midlife diseases. And um, the presenting author was Adetola Louise Jacques from the University of South Florida. And we know that lactation decreases risk of breast cancer, ovarian cancer, cardiovascular risk factors, and cardiovascular disease. The purpose of this study was to evaluate differences in global methylation pattern based on maternal lactation status. And For those of you who aren't familiar with um, DNA methylation, it is an important um, way in which our genes are regulated um, that is sort of in the category that's called epigenetics. And so I remember learning about genes, you know, initially and this idea that you've got a dominant and a recessive type of inheritance where you can have brown eyes if either of your parents has brown eyes, but you have to have a blue eye gene from each parent if you're going to have blue eyes. And over time, as we've become more and more sophisticated with understanding DNA, we understand that there are a lot of other factors that come into play as to whether or not certain genes are expressed. And those factors, like methylation, can be um, fluid throughout our lifetime. So this was a prospective cohort study of um, 71 healthy women over the first six months postpartum. In the study, they collected blood samples, demographic information, medical history, and detailed lactation history. The DNA was extracted from preserved peripheral blood um, mononuclear cells of women who predominantly breastfed, it was either considered full or high partial breastfeeding, versus women who did not breastfeed between four and six months postpartum. And when they analyzed the results, they found um, on 24 samples between those who breastfed and those who did not, um, eight genes were significantly differentially methylated. So there were differences in the methylation of eight genes, and they list out the names of the genes with their numbers and letters. And these specific genes have previously been linked to obesity and responsiveness to diet intervention, metabolic health multiple cancers, cardiovascular disease, rheumatoid arthritis, inflammatory bowel disease, and neurological disorders. 
This was the first study of this type to demonstrate an association between maternal lactation status and differential DNA methylation in humans. And I thought that was really fascinating. Yeah, that is amazing. I would love to learn more about that. And maybe we can do a podcast on that topic. I don't even know what to say about that. I mean, the question is, how does that impact, you know, how long does it go on for? Is it only during lactation? And clearly this, you know, maybe that biological, you know, those biological plausibility. Yeah, absolutely. Um, really helps me better to understand, you know, why it is that all of these different health effects would be seen from lactation. Yeah, somehow the effect has to be there. And this is, you know, it's like rubber to the road. This is like how it happens. So that's just amazing. Yeah, let's keep that in mind. Put that one under another uh, special pile. <laughs> <laughs> we have a pretty big special pile. We do, but that's good. So what do you have? Um, so I have one entitled Semi-Structured Interviews to Identify Breastfeeding Facilitators and Barriers Among African-American Women in Champaign County. This was uh, authored by Julia Kim at the University of Illinois in um, Champaign-Urbana, uh, which, which has a medical school. So in, their, in her introduction, she states that obesity rates are highest among African-American children in the United States, and epidemiological evidence suggests that breastfeeding reduces the incidence of childhood obesity and overweight. So the objectives of this study were to identify perceived barriers and facilitators of breastfeeding and to gain insight into potential intervention programs that would reduce perceived barriers and strengthen those facilitators in order to support breastfeeding for African-American mothers in Champaign County. So uh, they took uh, 15 African-American women who participate in the WIC program, which for those of you who have not who don't know of WIC, it's the special supplemental nutrition program for women, infants, and children, which is available in every county and state, um, city, et cetera, in the United States. And these are women who had breastfed um, in the last year and lived in Champaign County, Illinois. And they participated in semi-structured interviews. Um, and what they found in talking, I guess is like a focus group, basically, uh, they found that facilitators of breastfeeding or those factors that promote breastfeeding are having social support access to WIC-related breastfeeding resources, and knowledge and early exposure to breastfeeding. And barriers to breastfeeding were lack of social support, returning to work or school, and lack of exposure and knowledge about the benefits of breastfeeding. And so the major themes uh, that came about for future interventions based on this research included, first of all, establishing support groups um, or some sort of panel of breastfeeding on breastfeeding um, by uh, mothers who were experienced and those who were rookies um, being led by women of color. Um, in addition, nor, uh, working on the normalization and desexualization of breastfeeding by advertising on social media, websites, billboards, and flyers, and then providing breastfeeding education um, sessions in high school. So I thought that was good. Um, this may have been reproduced in other places, but it's always good to remember, you know, keeping our, our eyes on the ball in terms of what really has to happen in a community to increase breastfeeding rates among certain populations. That's really interesting. And, you know, that comment about high school, it makes me think about the fact that New York State has implemented a breastfeeding curriculum K through 12, so all the way through school. And I think that, you know, it makes sense at an appropriate level 
through all the grades to introduce this concept because by the time you have giggly teenagers, it is a little bit late to normalize breastfeeding. Right, uh, absolutely. And I think um, someone else had, there was another state that um, had uh, established a program as well, like a curriculum for uh, throughout the school years. It's something that would be nice to talk about as well um, in another podcast, in a podcast. So put that in that special <laughs> pile. Give us yes. Lots of ideas of things we want to talk about. Yes. So um, I'm going to talk about an abstract that uh, relates to a topic that we had done a podcast on previously, and so it piqued my interest. This was titled Case Study, Breastfeeding Policy Development During the Sierra Leone Ebola Virus Epidemic by Amelia Brandt at Tulane University. So in Sierra Leone, the Ministry of Health and Sanitation has demonstrated a commitment to increasing breastfeeding rates, and they had launched a comprehensive program in 2009. And according to 2013 demographic and health survey, 97% of children were breastfed at some point, um, a 2% increase since 2008, and exclusive breastfeeding for children from zero to six months had increased from 11% to 32% in 2013. But in May of 2014, the first case of Ebola virus disease was reported in the country, and breastfeeding poses a risk for Ebola transmission while mother is symptomatic and after recovery. Um, As we talked about at that time, it was clear that the risk of um, Ebola virus transmission from a symptomatic mother to a child outweighed the benefits of breastfeeding um, because Ebola has about a 50% mortality rate. Little was known about the risk of transmission through the breast milk of survivors. And there's still no definitive information on how long Ebola virus can be transmitted through breast milk. So the Ministry of Health and Sanitation and their partners were tasked with developing breastfeeding recommendations for survivors, developing behavior change messages based on those recommendations, disseminating those messages to key stakeholders and the public, And they faced a lot of challenges. So they had a lack of necessary information for the recommendations. New, sometimes contradictory information was emerging throughout the epidemic. There were a large number of organizations involved in the response. There was difficulty maintaining communication between different sectors because society was so disrupted. A large number of social and behavioral change messages were being transmitted nationally. And there was general distrust um, by the population of the health system and there was widespread presence of misinformation. So the Ebola virus epidemic increased the number of children under two years who were unable to breastfeed either due to um, being the child of a survivor or having the child having been separated um, from their mother. And so the Ministry of Health responded by providing ready-to-use infant formula to children only from zero to six months in these categories. Um, Children from 6 to 24 months were not eligible due to fear of encouraging the use of um, ready-to-feed formula and further decreasing breastfeeding rates. The program was not advertised and few children benefited. So the authors state, um, the evolution of breastfeeding policy messaging and nutrition programming in Sierra Leone is illustrative of the link between infectious diseases and breastfeeding. The lessons learned included ensuring that breastfeeding experts were included in outbreak response, 
developing a digital repository for national policies to reduce conflicting messages, include identification of children in need of nutritional services as part of initial outbreak response, and prioritize research on vertical transmission of Ebola virus. Interesting. Hmm. Yeah, I, I thought that, you know, that was really, um, you know, it's not surprising to hear the challenges they face, but it really is thought-provoking, and hopefully we, we hear, you know, intermittently messages about the importance of breastfeeding in disaster outbreaks, um, and I think this is really made me think more about more about that because you know a lot of times I think well that's great if people are breastfeeding when the disaster strikes but you know if they're not right how right. can we support those families right and how do you communicate how do you make sure the message is a unified message and evidence-based and yeah and I think yeah. just having people who are knowledgeable on the subject be part of um, the team is really a good place to start Absolutely, which I feel like a lot of times we got left out because the whole breastfeeding arena and secretion of substances into breast milk, particularly, you know, germs, ends up in the hands of infectious disease and microbiology. And people forget that there are lactationologists out there who know a lot about this, who can, you know, kind of piece things together along with, you know, working with working with ID. So I, th I see that a lot in my, my own community that I get left out of decisions on really sick dyads at the university or something like that. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I, I think, you know, Tulane's University School of, it's a school of public health and tropical medicine, which mm -hmm. is often where infectious disease is studied in both of those places. Um, and breastfeeding being such an important public health initiative, it makes sense to me that they would be looking into this. Yeah, absolutely. Very good. Okay. Um, so the my next abstract is entitled, Can Mothers Beyond One Year of Lactation Be Donors of Human Milk for Premature Infants? And the presenting author is Ursula Bernatowicz-Lajko. Um, I probably destroyed that name. Um, she's with the Human Milk Bank in Poland. So um, she, what they did is they looked at macronutrients and energy contents in 132 samples of expressed milk from 21 preemie mothers, 96 samples from 12 term infant mothers, and um, who were all in the first two to six weeks of lactation, and then 144 samples from 30 mothers who were beyond one year of lactation. And so they compared fat, total nitrogen, carbs, and the total energy contents of the milk. So they actually found that there's more milk, there's more fat in samples um, from mothers who were over one year of lactation compared to preterm and term infant mothers. Uh, the total nitrogen content, which would reflect protein um, in term infants um, was lower than in preterm, which we know that preterm milk tends to be higher in protein. Um, and it also was uh, the milk from mothers who were over one year of lactation actually had more protein than the uh, term mothers. So highest protein was preterm, then next was over a year, and third was the term infants who were between two to six weeks postpartum, which I thought was really interesting. Um, hmm. And then the energy contents in mothers uh, of the milk from mothers over one year was actually higher um, than in the other groups than in the preterm group and then the term group. So basically more calories per ounce in that group. Well, they got more protein and more fat. 
so yeah. not surprised. Um, well, so yeah, more protein than the term, um, right, and more fat, right. And so th these results uh, allowed this author to conclude that women beyond one year of lactation should not be rejected as donors because the macronutrient value of their milk is appropriate to the needs of preterm infants. So my comment about that is that we know that preterm infants need more protein. So fat and calories in and of itself is not associated with growth. It's been shown to be the protein that's most important, right? Because they, they need the building blocks for tissue growth. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I guess my only, my other comment about that is that, um, there's also the, um, you know, the chain differences in calcium, vitamin C, other factors, um, that, uh, we have, that haven't been looked at. Well, yeah. That's, and even beyond that, when you were listing the things that they looked at, I was thinking, well, you know, what about the white blood cells and the chemical messengers and, you know, the right. oligosaccharides, all the millions of things now that we know are in milk. And just the title, I think, set me off because if my choice is donor milk from a mom who's over, whose baby's over a year or formula, I'm going to choose the donor milk for the preterm baby and yeah, prevent absolutely. all those, you know, harms that come from giving formula to the, that population. Yeah. Well, I think that uh, the, the issue is that a lot of moms who are over a year want to continue to donate to the milk banks. And now some of the milk banks in the United States are, a lot, are taking that milk between one and two years and they're, and they're using it for outpatients. Mm, um, and so I they can see. sell for outpatient use. So the question is, should, should, because we could really increase our, our amount, the amount of milk that's donated to human milk banks in this country, if we can take milk from women who are beyond one year postpartum, I don't know how many women beyond one year postpartum, you know, would want to donate because I mean, to me, that signals freedom from pumping when you're beyond a year at that point, if you're nursing your toddler, you should like be free from your pump and just nurse and nurse a couple <laughs> times a day and be free, you know, that's kind of the greatest thing ever is not have to pump at work or whatever. Um, but I imagine some moms just, you know, do have a fair amount of milk and, and want to continue to donate. So, yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. Mm -hmm. All righty. Well, let's come back to, um, sort of, gosh, I don't even know how I would classify this abstract. It <laughs> is titled, Optimal Periods of Exclusive Breastfeeding Associated with Any Breastfeeding Duration, Replication with a Diverse Sample, by Anne Dozier at University of Rochester. And as we know, a positive association between duration of exclusive, of early exclusive breastfeeding and duration of any breastfeeding has been repeatedly demonstrated. Previously, Brownell and colleagues um, used an, um, a new application of something called receiver-operator characteristic curves to show that duration of exclusive breastfeeding can be used to predict the duration of any breastfeeding out to 12 months in a national sample of predominantly white, highly educated women with partner support. And the authors of this study um, were interested in using this novel technique to um, look at a different data set. They had a low-income, um, diverse group of mothers. They talk a lot about their sampling, but what I thought was interesting about this was that they looked at the minimum duration of exclusive breastfeeding 
um, and the thresholds range from three weeks to 13 weeks that were associated with maintenance of any breastfeeding at six time points between four and 20 weeks. So not going out all that far, you know, any breastfeeding only out to about five months. But what they found was the exclusivity threshold for maintenance of any breastfeeding at three months um, was, which is 13 weeks, and at 20 weeks was nine and 14 weeks. So that basically is telling me that about four weeks after moms introduce formula, they are done breastfeeding. Mm, and this is very similar to what the previous author had found in his highly educated white population, where um, any breastfeeding at three months and 20 weeks were um, found with an exclusive breastfeeding time of nine and a half weeks and 12 weeks. Mm. And they say that the fact that both analyses yielded similar results using demographically different samples demonstrates that there may be a biological basis for this phenomenon. And additionally, these threshold estimates could be used by physicians, lactation consultants, peer counselors, and others working with mothers to generate specific targeted goals to enhance the likelihood of achieving breastfeeding duration recommendations. And I actually would sort of put a twist on that last statement and say that I think that really the fact that this has um, been shown to be somewhat universal um, makes me more likely to say to moms who are intending to dual feed, there's pretty good evidence that people aren't going to exclusively breastfeed for you know that much longer than a month past when they introduce formula and try to help people understand the challenges of low dose, as we call it in California. Yeah. And I think that um, this, there's a lot more work to be done in this respect because there are probably certain characteristics that are, that would def define the population that's most likely to continue both versus the folks that, you know, once they, they work exclusively breastfeeding and then they add formula and they're done because there are women who have insufficient milk supply. They have breastfeeding problems early on. They start formula early. So they haven't exclusively breastfed very long, but they stick to it throughout no, the absolutely. year. There so, are certainly moms who I see who are, you know, doing a lot of long, long-term breastfeeders. So, you know, they're breastfeeding, their baby's past their second birthday who really never exclusively breastfed. Um, and so there's, there are certain populations um, right. that that holds true for as well. Right. Yeah. So it's, yeah, I would feel bad about saying to someone, well, you know, you <laughs> introduced formula. Yeah. yeah. Right. <laughs> right. So I think, uh, I think that's a good start um, in terms of like clinical utility, but I think we need to just be more respectful of a population and kind of figure out what are those other risk factors so that you can, it's kind of like knowing in my population who's going to have a heart attack and say, well, you know, you're smoking and you have high blood pressure and you have, you know, high cholesterol and you're overweight and you don't exercise. Okay. I can say that person, you're, you know, you're like a walking time bomb, time bomb. but when I don't, but I think we need to have a few more characteristics of women who are, you know, at risk for early weaning when they introduce formula because, you know, sometimes they just need that little extra for daycare and they want to keep going. And so, yeah, so yeah. that's, that's interesting. It's interesting that you bring up daycare because I've been really interested this year in this idea that 
you know, moms are being told by their daycare that they need to send more milk when really they don't. Yeah. Um, it has to do with how the daycare is feeding the baby. And so moms start supplementing at the bequest of their, um, at the request of their daycare. And then, you know, they start thinking they don't have enough. They get discouraged. It's sort of a downward spiral. Um, there are so many factors. It's really, it's complicated and it's a journey for all moms. I just, I feel like a lot of times people have unrealistic expectations and it's, it's so many time points. You know, I happened to see a mom right after she had some little bump in the road and I'm able to say, Oh no, no, you don't have to pump and dump for a week because of amoxicillin and, you know, exactly. put her back on course. And that mom that you, that same thing happened to, but you didn't see her until a month later. It's too late. Exactly. Right. Yeah. It's very dynamic. Yeah. All right. So my next abstract is entitled extremely overweight infants and risk of, uh, overweight in childhood in relation to duration of exclusive breastfeeding, which was um, a study within the Danish National Birth Cohort. The presenting author was Melanie Wang Larson. And so in their background, she states that, um, that there's um, a group of exclusively breastfed infants who have accelerated growth in infancy, who are basically those really fat babies. <laughs> and you wonder, wow, is this a problem? You know, you and I have both seen those babies. <laughs> oh, they're yeah. like 22 pounds at four months. And you wonder, okay, <laughs> is this really okay or not? And baby. what's happening to these babies? There was yeah. a baby in my group when I was a new mom. And it looked like she'd eaten one of the other babies. Oh, it was no. so fat. And now when, her, when that child stands next to my daughter, they're both just normal string bean nine-year-olds. Exactly. Yeah, right. Well, so then the question is, okay, what does research show with these babies? So the objective of this study was to examine the difference in risk of overweight at age seven years of age for extremely overweight infants who are exclusively breastfed for at least five months compared to those who are exclusively breastfed for a shorter period of time. So, um, so basically, I'll just cut to the chase. Uh, they found that um, extremely overweight infants had an adjusted odd ratio for overweight at age seven of 3.6, which is really high um, when compared to non-overweight infants. So the, so the risk, if, you, if they're very overweight as an infant, um, they have a much higher risk of being overweight at age seven. Um, and then the interaction between extreme overweight and exclusive breastfeeding was not significant, indicating that the risk of overweight at age seven was not different between the two groups of infants exclusively breastfed for shorter or longer than five months. So they said that extremely overweight infants have a high risk of overweight at age seven, regardless whether they are exclusively breastfed for five months or for a shorter period of time. And further analysis of duration of breastfeeding as a quantitative exposure will show associations with risk of later overweight. So that's interesting. I have to say that my experience, I mean, that's interesting because that's a big population study. But from my personal experience, um, I see some of these like hugely chubby babies. And my daughter was one of them. She was like 32, 33 pounds at a year. And she, yeah, and she's, you know, not, I mean, she's, she's, she has a totally normal BMI. She's felt. <laughs> she's felt, exactly. And so, um, but no, I see that, you know, over all these years of my practice, I personally think it has a lot to do 
with um, if they are formula fed and if they and I, I think the other thing in my from I guess from my observations is that the families who where the babies are really overweight and they're breastfeeding that they tend to have better food choices they tend to be more enlightened about healthier foods as the as the yeah I'm curious how this would and, break down if you look at different socioeconomic groups right, exactly. under this study. Right. If you look at, right, exactly. Because people who are more educated are going to likely have a healthier diet, um, have, and if they have more money, they can choose more fruits and vegetables. And so um, I think that there's, uh, just looking at the, that cohort, you do have to look at subpopulations. Yeah, absolutely. You've got me flipping like a madwoman through all these abstracts while you're talking because there was an abstract, actually there were two that I read that related to this study that I was like, yeah, I could skip that <laughs> talking about it. But now I'm like, well, what did the other one say right. that was on the similar topic? This is just going to be a mystery for all of you listening to us. You'll just have to go to the abstracts and read them all. Well, in addition, we can put that in the special pile too, because then we can come back and look at that population and see what research has been done on that. <laughs> Sounds fantastic. Yeah. Um, so we're going to talk more about um, sucking with an abstract called The Characteristics of the Infant Sucking Curve and Milk Removal from the Breast in Term Infants. Um, this was presented by Donna Tracy um, Geddes at the University of Western Australia. I apologize, Donna, if I said your name wrong. Um, it's been shown that intraoral vacuum is a key component to the milk removal from the breast with milk being transferred only in the first half of the suck cycle, the suck, swallow cycle, and we breathe. Suck, swipe, I can talk, suck, suck. <laughs> Say that five times feet. fast. <laughs> okay, so typically infants remove 50% of the milk from the breast in the first two minutes of nutritive sucking. This is the main reason I wanted to read this abstract, because I didn't know that. And it increases to 80% of the milk at four to five minutes of nutritive sucking. Um, and this corresponds closely to the first and second milk ejections, which are about one and a half to two minutes in duration of breastfeeding. Um, but there's limited information about the relationship between intraoral vacuum and milk transfer during breastfeeding. And so they did this study um, with 19 exclusively breastfed infants where they monitored a breastfeeding session using a pressure transducer, a little tube they put into their mouth while they were nursing. They also had ultrasound imaging of looking at the milk flow and respiratory inductive plesimo plesmothography, looking at their swallowing, um, to determine what was the nutritive sucking portion of the feed. The first and next two minutes of nutritive sucking from the first breast were analyzed and milk intake was determined by test weighing the infants. Infants were estimated to remove 38 milliliters plus or minus 15 milliliters. So that's about an ounce, a little more, plus or minus half an ounce and 23 milliliters plus or minus nine in the first and next two minutes of nutritive sucking respectively. The volume of milk removed during both periods was negatively associated with peak vacuum and rate of vacuum application and positively related to the area under the first half of the cycle. Higher suck frequencies and shorter intersuck intervals were associated with more milk being removed per individual suck cycle. And what the authors concluded was that this supports the role of intraoral vacuum 
in effective and efficient milk removal during breastfeeding, and infants appear to modify their sucking dynamics to adapt to changes in milk flow during milk ejection as the breast empties and possibly in response to their progressive satiety. So I found this absolutely fascinating for a couple of reasons. Um, I think it's so interesting, all the different modalities they're using to look at the suck, to understand it better. I think it's really interesting to think about how much and how quickly the milk is transferred and how the mom and the baby's bodies are working together. I also really came back to that point where it said the intake was determined by test weight. And I don't know if you've seen this ad that came out this week for this new sensor that's like a little microphone that goes on the baby's jawbone while they're nursing to try to listen to the baby's swallows and get a an idea of how much babies are transferring. Right. Um, yeah, I heard about that. It, it just blew me away. I was like, oh my gosh, what will we do next? There's, you know, so, everything's becoming so technical these but days. I, yeah, but I mean, yeah, I'm really skeptical about that, that because I don't that's need... That's my point, is like, we're becoming bionic. No good right. Reason. But the thing is that, I mean, I don't need a transducer to know when someone swallows. I can just sit and watch a feeding and look at when this baby's swallowing and I can tell you, I cannot estimate how much a baby took. I mean, I'm constantly doing pre and post feed weights in my clinic. Well, yeah, I cannot we've estimate talked it. About that many times, is right? That you can be fooled. Babies yes. sometimes they look so good, right? And I just, I think it's really interesting that they're studying this. I think that you know the proof is always in the weight, and the babies, the babies tell us we cannot necessarily know this five minutes exactly how that feeding went, but. Right. Luckily, they gain so fast in a day or two. I know whether or not they're nursing well. Right. Well, I like I like this work, and I think um, she may have been a co-author on some of the work done by Kent, who also um, you know states in some of his and uh, his research articles that somewhere between fifty to sixty percent of milk is consumed. You know, with the first letdown. I use this when I explain to patients um, when they you know are so used to setting their iPhone to the fifteen minute mark. You know, when they start nursing. And they're just exhausted and their babies, um, you know, they're just trying to maximize, you know, milk transfer and their nipples are sore. And what I try to point out to them is, look, you know, you just had a first letdown. Now your baby is going to, is taking a break. Now your baby's having a second. Now there's a second letdown. And then now look, it's been quiet for 10 minutes. Your baby's been quiet yeah. for 10 minutes. You don't need to do that. You know, after that second letdown, take the baby off, put the baby on the other side, and then we'll do a little switch nursing. And then they're done in like, you know, 15 minutes as opposed oh, to 30 yeah. minutes. And they're like, wow, this is great. I, you know, and I tried to explain like, you have to watch your baby's behavior. But I think that that research that they've done is important. However, my question is in the study is how many weeks postpartum was I had that question mother, also, right. was how far postpartum are these moms? Right. Because I get this call all the time. And I had a patient come in recently. I can't remember. The baby was maybe... I don't know, three months old. And the mom was so distressed because the baby was only eating for six minutes and then wouldn't go back on. And she was, the baby was done. The right. baby was super right. efficient. Well, and then the other thing is that you have, you know, the living and the letdown babies who just like, 
they hardly have to do anything and prolactin levels are high and moms, you know, have heavy letdowns. And then as that prolactin level comes down and they're not overproducing as much, those letdowns are smaller and the baby has to stay on and really get another letdown to happen. And then that's when they start to falter, you know, especially mm-hmm. if they have a tongue tie. And so, so I think it would be interesting to compare that work, you know, with like, a baby who's like six weeks, who's a good eater versus a baby who's, you know, maybe who's, you know, four months old, five months old, um, to see what, what really happens. Um, yeah. So that, that mom, the first questions I had were about the growth chart because, you know, there are some babies who they don't eat very long and they're not getting enough, but this was a chubberific baby who was getting plenty. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Good. So I think we'll wrap up. I'll do one more. You do one more. <laughs> I'm out. Oh, you're out. Okay, so I'll just do one more. Um, This one is entitled, Why Don't Peer-to-Peer Milk Sharers in the United States Donate to Milk Banks? And this was presented by Marianne Chigchiller Perrin, who's at North Carolina State University in the Food, Bioprocessing, and Nutrition Sciences. Um, And there were multiple co-authors. So the background is that lactating women in the United States have several options for what to do with excess milk including donating to milk banks that serve medically fragile infants. Uh, They can also share directly with families who seek milk, or they can sell their milk to individuals or to for-profit entities. And so the objective was to explore how lactating women in the United States with a surplus of breast milk come to the decision to share their milk with a peer rather than donate to a milk bank. Uh, What they did is a uh, semi-structured telephone interviews with 27 women who had shared milk with a peer, but not with a milk bank. Um, These participants shared anywhere between 100 and 9,200 ounces of milk um, between one, with between one and eight recipients. So kind of the small group of um, families who needed milk. Did you say 9,200? Yes, I did. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. You know, some women are just like super women, can I say? (laughs) So there were five dominant themes that were identified um, with in these interviews with 27 women. Um, There was number one, there was a strong belief in the value of breast milk. Um, there was the unexpected versus planned donation. So these are probably like, you know, maybe on, I'm not sure, you know, which one was more likely or not, uh, if it was unexpected or planned. Um, Social circles as a primary source of information, not healthcare providers. So hearing more about it through friends um, rather than through their doctors. And then concerns and knowledge gaps about milk banks and the desire to help and connect. Um, so they felt that this research offers insights into potential strategies for promoting milk bank donation among peer-to-peer milk sharers, including developing donor education campaigns, focusing on knowledge gaps regarding milk banks, um, and also working on healthcare professional referral programs that can reduce barriers um, associated with the convenience of milk bank donation. I'm surprised that they didn't talk about convenience because I find that that's a big deal. Um, that women who don't, who want to donate call, you know, they may call a local milk bank, maybe don't get an answer for a couple of days or find that they have to, you know, get their blood drawn and then they have to get a note from their, um, from their doctor and the baby's doctor. And they may be between doctors or um, don't think that their doctor is going to do anything with the, with the, you know, with the 
node and they would have to communicate with the healthcare provider about the fact that this letter is going to come. And they may just say, screw it, you know, I'll just share it with, you know, this person down the street who I really like a lot, you know. Yeah, I mean, it does often seem odd to me that moms have to get a letter. I mean, I, I understand the theory behind it, that moms have to get a letter that their baby is thriving before they're able to donate this milk. But it's, you know, the, the freezer's already full. And the baby right. is what the baby is. Yeah. So. Well, I think it's more of a character thing, you know. So if I know that I have a mother, you know, the thing about healthcare providers is that hopefully they have some insight into the family dynamics. And so if if I know someone who wants to donate, but I know for a fact that she intermittently engages in cocaine use, um, which she may not have, you know, disclosed to the milk bank, um, I'm, you know going to say no. Um, I certainly have met mothers who um, have been a little pathologic with, you know, with using drugs, and then they've been asked to stop nursing, and they continue to produce milk, and then decide they're going to donate it. Um, you know, this weird stuff, you know, weird There's stuff. So much weird stuff that we encounter yeah. in this work. So I think that, I mean, I mean, the bottom line is that most donors are super safe. But I think having a healthcare provider who just hopefully knows a little bit more whether it's the family doctor for both of them or the pediatrician and uh, the primary care physician for the mother, someone else who, who kind of knows a story and says, oh, yeah, this person's safe. Like, I, I feel good about what this mother's doing. You know, just knowing more than just the health, but also knowing the social situation, I think, is, is kind of like a, you know, a way to just verify that this is an okay thing to do in addition to all the other testing that mothers go through. So I still, I think, you know, even though it is kind of a barrier, I think it does add to some safety to the donor milk pool, you know, for these really super fragile babies, you know, in the hospital. Sure. So. And the fact that they pool the milk also reduces mm -hmm. the risk as well. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Great. Well, that's exciting. So again, if anyone um, would like to explore these abstracts more, it's in the March issue of Breastfeeding Medicine Journal um, in 2016. So I will um, talk to you like in a couple weeks. Yeah, I'm going to see you at the USBC. Absolutely. Which for those who are listening, that will be or had been <laughs> in July because we'll probably post this in August. So, oh, no, it's, I'm sorry, it's, in it's, August. it's early August. So, yeah, maybe we can get this out by August. That'll be great. All right. Take care. Talk All to you right. later. Yep. Bye. Bye. For questions regarding this podcast, contact us through themilkmob.org. We have other educational projects going on there, such as the Clinical Question of the Week and our Outpatient Breastfeeding Champion programs. If you want to see what we look like, check out our Facebook page, where you can also share comments and questions with your co-listeners. To learn more about the Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine, please visit www.bfmed.org. Thanks for listening. We'll be back with you in a few weeks.